Hello, this is Dan Chagru, and welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast, where I explore the relationship between music and commerce by talking to musicians, mostly guitarists, about how they got their start and how they make ends meet. Welcome to episode 8 of the More Art Than Science podcast. It's been a few weeks, at least inside my head, since I posted the Clarice Assad podcast in July. I want to highlight a couple of posts and articles on the economics of music and art that friends of the show, Derek Gripper and Adam Levin, brought to my attention. I bring these up because during the interview with Scott, he mentions that his first and only solo album, Phases, or also known as On an Overgrown Path, is not on Spotify. I went to check up on that while editing the interview and found that it is, in fact, on Spotify. This blew my mind. Spotify is touted in the mainstream and the music press as the savior of the music industry. According to popular narrative, CDs are dead. Vinyl is making a slow comeback, but vinyl records are not easy to ship and are too fragile to bring and sell at live shows. Downloads, last decade's savior of music, have died. Even Apple has given up on downloads in favor of all-you-can-eat streaming music. So streaming is how musicians are supposed to make money off of their recorded work. And Spotify is the king of the streaming services. It is by far the most popular music streaming music service. But Scott is not getting any checks from Spotify. And in fact, he's not even aware that his music is available on Spotify. His label must have put it up and then neither promoted it nor even told Scott, the performing artist, that it is there. And obviously, if the label is making any money at all, Scott is seeing none of it. Now, I have to admit that I am a bit of an optimist, an optimist, or maybe a pessimistic optimist, meaning I think things are bad, but they'll get better. I have a friend who works at Spotify. I've interviewed him about these issues in the past, and I want to believe that Spotify can help artists. But I've come around after recording and posting eight of these podcasts, and after talking and reading about the industry in the meantime. I've especially come around in these past few weeks, when some friends and former guests have helped turn the tide. So I wanted to insert three quotes here. The first is from Anil Prasad, who is the founder and editor of Interviews, Music Without Borders, which is an online music magazine that's been around since 1995. And I'm quoting, or mostly quoting here, a little bit of paraphrasing uh, from Anil. I hate to tell you this, but none of you are going to make it through these streaming services. I know hundreds of musicians from global superstars to neighborhood buskers and not a single one, I want to emphasize this, not a single one has made any of their entanglements with big music tech create any meaning for them. No one is making any money. No one has seen these services advance their careers by a single inch. The only people benefiting are the six-figure employees, millionaire executives and investors, and billionaire CEOs at the tech companies. You are sleeping with the enemy when you get in bed with them. So much of the foundation of such great music has been real do-it-yourself. These services create a dependency-based fiction that when you work with them, you are DIY, when the reality is you've sold the farm for fractions of pennies on the dollar. Real DIY means getting out there and booking your own gigs, slogging through the bureaucracy, figuring out novel ways to get your music to people, and creating attention for it independent of the scam-based big tech music companies. The single credible online vendor for music remains Bandcamp. 
there's nothing else left that works and has momentum, honor, and consistent, cyclical, predictable payouts. Next, a post from Derek Gripper. We know from episode one of this podcast that Derek is not a fan of Spotify, and that even though he has 5,000 monthly listeners and has racked up more than 500,000 listens, he's making just a few dollars a month from the service. I love that Derek is hustling and looking for new ways to reach fans. Here's a post from August 25th on his Facebook page, and I'm quoting, I've been enjoying my record collection so much and so enjoying arriving at gigs with only vinyl and selling to people who don't even have a record player but plan on getting one, and they will, it does happen. And we had multiple requests for libraries on fire. I thought today I would just open a pre-order. I only need 150 orders to send the master to the pressing plan and have libraries on fire on 180 gram vinyl for the first time ever. It's a great pre-order. You pay now and you don't know when you'll get it. So here it is. And he leaves the uh, URL, which is newcape.bandcamp.com slash album slash libraries on fire. And he asks his listeners share uh, far and wide. And then he gives a link to his other album, One Night on Earth, that's already available on vinyl. So Derek is essentially doing what some of my artist friends tell me is not possible because vinyl is too inconvenient to ship and carry. He's selling vinyl at his shows and he's doing that internationally. And he also seems to agree with Anil. Bandcamp is for real and it works. Finally, an article featuring Neil Young. And in this article, Neil is mostly ranting and raving about streaming services. Um, in the New York Times Magazine, and this is also from August. And I'm quoting here also with a little bit of paraphrasing, um, quoting from the author and the interviewer. Neil Young's ear, or ire, was focused on the engineers of Silicon Valley, against whom he has been zealously waging war for decades. Silicon Valley's emphasis on compression and speed, he believes, comes at the expense of the notes as they are actually played and is doing something bad to music which is supposed to make us feel good. It's doing something bad to our brains. As Young once put it, quote, I'd rather play in a garage, in a truck or a rehearsal hall, a club or a basement. What he's after is not some ideal sound, but the sound of what happened. The missed notes and off kilter sounds are part of his art, which is the promise of the real, but also even mainly of imperfection. The idea that big technology companies are engineering all that back and forth out of his music just kills him. It's gotten to the point where he doesn't want to write music anymore. He admitted, quote, I've got great melodies, but I was just saying the other day, I'm not interested in making any more records. They sound like shit. At the ground level, which is to say, not the level where technologists live, but where but the level where artists write and record songs for people who care about the human experience of listening to music, the internet was as if a meteor had wiped out the existing planet of sound. The compressed hollow sound of free streaming music was a big step down from the CD and a huge step down from vinyl, as Young says. Each step eliminated levels of sonic detail and shading by squeezing down the amount of information contained in the package in which music was delivered. Or as Young told me, you are left with, quote, 5% of the original music for your listening enjoyment. His next remedy, which is why he invited me out to Roberts' home, this is the uh, interviewer talking, is a website that he calls the Neil Young Archives, a digital repository of his recorded work that he introduced last summer at considerable personal expense. 
let's say well over a million dollars, his manager later told the interviewer with a sigh. The interface for the archives looks like a set of old file cabinets that might have been heisted from an old-time bail bondsman's office. By clicking open the various cabinets, you can stream every song that Young ever released and a growing portion of his unreleased songs in an information-rich file format and play them back through a DAC, which is a digital-to-analog converter device that approximates the sound of good vinyl. That's the end of the quote. All of, which, all of which brings us back to my interviewee this week, Scott Borg. Scott is one of my favorite guests thus far. He brought refreshing honesty and straight talk to our conversation, especially when it came to the economics of being an artist. So who is Scott Borg? He's a solo classical guitarist and a performer who plays with grace, passion, and spontaneity. He's got a string of international scholarships and awards under his belt. He's played in Mexico, Peru, Australia, Spain, New York's Apollo Theater, and Carnegie Hall, and he's played at the Kennedy Center. He received his Doctorate of Musical Arts from the New England Conservatory right here in Boston. Uh, he received his Artist Diploma from Yale, a Master's of Music from Juilliard, and a Bachelor of Creative Arts with First Class Honors from the University of Wollongong in Australia. In 2001, he was the sole recipient of the Australian Music Examination Board's highest honor, the Fellowship of Music. He's currently on the faculty at Montgomery College, and he's also artistic director at the Mid-Maryland Guitar Festival, and he's the conductor of the BCGS. The B in there is for Baltimore, not Boston. He's also a member of the Great Necks, a guitar trio with friend of the show Adam Levin and Matthew Rohde. The Great Necks' debut album was released this year on the Sony Frameworks label and reached number 10 on the traditional classical billboard charts. His debut solo CD, On an Overgrown Path, was released um, on the Oderdrac label and features some imaginative and ambitious playing. On to the interview. Okay, Scott Borg, welcome to URI Guitar Fest 2019. How are you? Good, thanks so much for having me. Excellent. So let's start with Scott Borg as a young man or young boy. Um, what, what's the first time that you remember being moved by music? I wouldn't say so much being moved by music, but maybe being forced into music. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> no, uh, it was it was a really kind of interesting uh, story. Well, at least I think it's it's interesting. I grew up in a very small town yep. um, on the south coast of New South Wales in Australia, uh, a town of about a thousand people. Mm -hmm. We had a bit of a kind of like a a hobby farm. We had some animals and, mm. and, and, and everything like that. And uh, the reality is, is that I was always around music. My, my father is, is a drummer, and uh, he used to play in uh, many, many bands. Um, what types of bands? It was, uh, he, he, had, he had several bands, uh, um, but most kind of frequently he used to perform in a wedding band. Okay. Um, so, so there would always be music kind of resonating through our house. Mm. Um, the wedding band was doing like sort of like soft rock type of like yeah classics. like like yeah. basically the the classics and what was ever you know in the top forty at that mm -hmm. time yeah. and you know so I would always hear the same repeat uh, the same piece being repeated over and over and over and over again as as um, my father was writing down the drum charts mm. um, and so you know there was kind of really no way to avoid 
kind of always music having, playing. having yeah. music around and uh, you know there was like a little kind of studio in our in our garage and um, you know uh, my my brothers and and sister had done music and uh, all of my dad's family are musicians and so you know it was it was something that uh, I was kind of I guess destined to always be a part of and mm -hmm. it was very very hard to avoid so yeah, yeah. <laughs> So was it his idea to get Scott to play music, and what instrument did you start with? Yeah, so, uh, as I said, my, my father was a drummer, and uh, I think that deep down inside he always wanted to be a guitarist, ah. and so um, uh, he, on, when I was about seven, uh, my, my father bought uh, myself and my brother, who's two years older, a guitar, and um, we just started doing practice with, with him just sitting there and just kind of going through the early kind of method books with us and either steel string acoustic or no straight straight to nylon straight to, straight nylon. to nylon okay. straight to the kind of like more of a uh i'm not going to say classical technique but because i mean I, I didn't really kind of know what a classical technique was for many many years after that i mean but we had we had done um you know just kind of like chords and simple notation and stuff like that to start with uh, there were these I remember there's these three method books I, I went through. The first one was yellow. The second one was uh, orange. The next one was green. That's the only thing I remember about it. Oh, and then there was like a purple jazz kind of method thing oh, yeah. afterwards, you know, just just yeah. with a couple of songs like that. And uh, and in 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 Australia there is a there is a formalized kind of system, right. um, like there is in England with the <coughs> Trinity College and. And stuff like that, you know, we have something called the the AMEB, um, which is you know loosely based off the the Trinity College system, and it's a wave advancement, right? Um, with kind of classical studies. Um, so it's a, a grading system for young kids exactly. or, or, or yeah, yeah, learning or just, adults to yeah, just, just anybody, track their progress. yeah, anybody who wants to kind of you know just have like a good kind of steady approach to 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 how to kind of advance. Yeah. In, in guitar so so at seven were you fighting against your dad like you know i just want to go outside and play and he's like no you must practice another half hour or whatever i mean how much oh my gosh i do not remember okay um okay. my my memories of of that time in terms of what i actually did has been erased but you know i just remember it was a happy time um we we definitely went out and played a lot uh, but you know, we, we playing out, performing. You no, I'll just like playing outside oh, okay. around the house. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there was always that that kind of mentality in our in our house. You get your work done early in the morning, and then you've got the rest of the day to kind of do whatever you like. Okay, so and, and work meaning the practice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how, so, how do you remember how long you were practicing at that point? Seven, yeah, I was doing about two hours. Two hours straight a day. Yeah. As a seven-year-old. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Okay. Oh, so he must have really had a hold on you. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you know, the, I mean, when I when I say two hours, uh, it was kind of loose, I guess. I I remember uh, my dad, you know, because there was both of us working at the same time. Uh, you know, my dad would sit in in our rooms and just watch us practice and just kind of help us out and everything like that. And you know, I was in one room, my brother was in another room, and so you know, obviously he had to divide his, his time, and so he would ask us to record our practice, and so then he could listen to it. And uh, there was a couple of times when I would just hit the record button and then hit rewind and hit play, so it sounded as if I was practicing. So. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's fun. 
Um, okay, so 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 up until or I guess middle school, you've got a regimen that your dad is yep. uh, enforcing and, and helping you through. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then in uh, high school, were you in a music school or did you do? No, I yeah. just I just went to a public school. Okay. Um, and. Uh, and then practiced on the side. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, practice. I mean, we. I, I did all of the other things that 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 you know kids do in Australia. You know, I was in some sports teams. I I did early morning swimming training. And um, were you able to then, play? Did you grow your nails in high school? No, I did not have nails. Okay. I actually didn't have nails until I was twenty one. I played with with no nails, and then. Uh, Probably when I was around nineteen, I started actually putting fake nails on. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'd gone through <clears throat> a lot of the a lot of the classical rap. Um, you know, all, you know the Villa Lobos etudes, all the preludes. Um, you know, I was I was playing the bagatelles and stuff like that with with no nails. Huh. Um, you know, my my brother had these glorious nails and uh i was uh, i used to bite my nails and mm-hmm. you know we, we tried everything we tried that putting that um that substance on your oh, fingernails right. to stop you from biting and yeah. then i started to enjoy the taste of that so <laughs> so that didn't work um right. but yeah and you know i i think that especially uh you know being a, a young kid in, in like a really small town and where everybody knows everyone and you know for, for a young guy to have nails it was always like yeah. an issue of contention I guess yeah, and uh, you know so yeah. you know I, I I remember a couple of times when I, I I did kind of have the idea of putting some some fake nails on and you know I, I did get teased on the on the playground a fair bit so yeah, you know yeah. but that 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 comes with the territory right of, right of, of playing the guitar so Okay, so you, so you go through public school, high school, you're playing in the morning still before school? or Yeah, uh, like a, a combination. As I started to become, you know, more involved with, with the guitar, you know, I, I started to kind of um, prioritize uh, what was important. And um, so, you know, I used to do swimming training quite a fair bit. I, I really enjoyed swimming. Um, and, you know, I used to go three, four times a week swimming training. Mm. And, um, fun, fun fact, one of my, uh, uh, training partners actually, um, won gold in the Olympics. So, uh, she was very, I mean, awesome. I mean, when I say training partner, I guess that, you know, I, I had done one, you know, she had done, I had done one lap and she had already finished about 600 laps. <laughs> so, um, but you know, I, I started to kind of level out. The, the, the importance, um, you know, and especially as the, the work at school uh, got more vigorous, you know, something had to give. But um, it wasn't, you know, the music wasn't something that I was kind of prepared to let go. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you graduated from high school and you, did, and you decided to, at that point, pursue music or? Well, uh, you know, I was, um, I was at a crossroads um, at the end of, of high school. Uh, in, in Australia, we have a different system of how you can... Uh, of, of what you can pursue um and so i uh, pursued a double degree um in law and music oh wow um <coughs> and as an undergrad in, in yes, australia okay yeah and so you know the, the the way that that happens is you know basically you spend the first uh three years concentrating on the music degree and finishing that off and then you know at night time you take 
kind of a couple of law classes and everything, and then the last two years, then you finish law and law school and everything like that. And uh, so I, I finished my um, my music degree, and you know I I really enjoyed the law, but um, you know I. I there's no money in lawyering, so yeah, why not yeah, go music? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And it, 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 it's actually kind of funny because uh, at the same time, my my brother, he actually started off doing music and then he actually switched to law halfway through. And just after I was at that stage where I was trying to figure out what I, what I needed to do, uh, he actually became a lawyer. And... Um, Nothing against lawyers, of of course, but um, oh, you know, I just I just saw I saw his lifestyle, and I just knew kind of immediately that that wasn't for me. Okay, and you know, was so he, he in like a big firm in, in Australia, or yeah, like corporate yeah, law yeah, or, yeah. He yeah. was uh, he was in, in in quite a big firm um, in in Australia, and they worked him to the bone. Mm. So okay. uh, that wasn't something that I had ever kind of visualized myself doing yeah um so you, did you end up at Yale is that right or no well well actually so so I was at kind of a, a bit of a crossroads so I was like am I going to do music or am I going to do law and um funnily enough my parents really wanted me to do music nice um Great. so I was the one that really kind of wanted to do law originally and so I said to myself I'm going to audition for Juilliard if I get into Juilliard I'll do music if yeah. I don't I'll do law, oh. and so I, I came over to America, first time I'd ever been on a plane, or anything like that, um, first time I'd really left the, the safety of my little area where, yeah. where I grew up, and, um, you went straight to Manhattan? Yeah, yeah, okay. and, you know, got off the, got off the plane in a snowstorm, uh, wearing shorts and, and flip-flops, <laughs> And uh, <laughs> had no idea what I was doing. And, the Oz uh, man. Yeah, and you know, and and fortunately, um, you found shoes. Um, yeah, I found shoes and, and the jacket. But I, uh, my my audition um, uh, with with Sharon was was, oh. was really really great. And uh, what was meant to be only like a ten minute audition, uh, me and Sharon actually sat down and talked and played and you know had kind of like a mini lesson and I think it was like maybe an hour and a half wow. we actually um yeah. we actually went there and uh you know there was this kind of like um instant well I, and, and and of course you know I had had marvelous teachers in in Australia um you know Chris Keane Gregory Pickler um you know all very very important uh guitar uh pedagogues and you know but there, there, there was this kind of like instant connection with Sharon that I was um very very just thrilled to, to have and um, you know from that moment uh, I kind of um, just knew I just kind of had to do music and so as soon as I got back home I went straight to the registrar's office and just cancelled my law degree so oh, wow yeah okay so at, at so Sharon has been at Juilliard. The yep. the auditions are private then, or yeah, it was just a one on one. Like uh, you know, uh, we, I believe I, I can't remember, but I think that I originally submitted a tape, and then she accepted us for an audition. Hmm. And um, you know, she's very selective about who she chooses. Imagine, and yeah. uh, you know, I think that if if I remember correctly, 
Um, when I was there, we only had five people in the entire in the entire department. Oh wow! Um, from all, all around the world. Um, you know, yeah. there, was, there was a guy from from Israel. There was a guy from Turkey. There was a girl from ah, oh, where was she from? Nafsika. Oh, I just oh yeah. Yeah, she was. And then there was also a, a guy from Japan. Um, oh, actually, one more. There, there was a guy from Scotland. As cool. Well, so okay. So a diverse mix of people, but yeah. only five of them yeah. from all yeah. over the world. Yeah. Okay, and and so that, that's a master's in performance that you ended up pursuing at Juilliard. Or yeah, okay. so I actually originally went there to go and get a a graduate diploma um, because I really wasn't sure about the workload that a master's um, involved. Uh, but when I actually got there, I I found it, I figured out that I was doing all of the requirements of the master's anyway. So I just transferred okay. in, in, into a master's program. So you got the master's. Okay. Yeah. So so when you come out with, with the master's in performance, um, roughly what time period are we talking about here? 2004. 2004. And you're in, in Manhattan. I assume yes. you're... Now you've... What, what's the next decision? Whether or not to stay there, to pursue performing full-time? Were you also already teaching? What's, yeah, so I, I was very fortunate um, when I went to New York... Um, I got, from from the time period when I found out I was getting into Juilliard to getting to Juilliard, it was about a six-month time period. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you know, the fees for such a place are, are very, very expensive. And, yep. and you know, I, I come from a family of very modest means. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we actually spent those six months uh, just applying for grants and scholarships and uh, I actually was very, very lucky that I had a lot of support from the Australian government and a lot of other private donations and a lot of uh, charitable organizations. Uh, and I was actually able to fundra uh, fundraise the entire amount and needed wow, good for, you. for me to be there, for me, like room and board and everything like that. That's and so huge. I could just concentrate on what I needed to do. Yeah. But, you know, while I was there, I definitely kind of... Uh, you know, did some jobs. Uh, I used to work in the box office, which I was told was the best job, and I'm always in, told that. In terms of what? Best in terms of. Yeah, well, in in terms of, uh, you get to meet people, and and especially, uh, you get a lot of tickets, <laughs> because like people are always bringing back tickets and saying like, hey, you know, I can't make this performance. Here are some tickets for your students, and so I have to tell you, while I was in New York. I would go to Carnegie Hall three times a week. Nice. Uh, I would go to the Met. Um, I saw so many different diverse things, uh, you know, performances and events. Uh, you know, New York has, has everything. And so, uh, that's, that's if awesome. you know, yeah. people listening out there, if, if you're going to college and you're looking for a job, always try to get a job in the box office because yeah, that's, yeah. that's one of the, the I, best jobs you can possibly have. Yeah, it just reminds me, I had a, a, a colleague when I first got out of school uh, who was who worked as a volunteer bouncer, I'm putting it in air quotes, bouncer at the Orpheum in Boston. Yeah. Um, you know, beautiful venue, and they would call him in when they when big acts would come to the to town if they just needed an extra body, essentially, yeah. to direct people. He wasn't particularly big, he wasn't scary looking, but he would just basically get to go when yeah. national acts came to just direct people, oh, you know, oh, you're going, you know, balcony, that's this way, just point them. Yeah. And then when the show started, he would just come in and watch. Yeah, so, and, uh, you know, like, idea. so so I was I was really fortunate 
uh, for those first two years in New York that I didn't have to worry about finances. Um, awesome. yeah. and, and it actually allowed me to do all these really kind of hilarious things. Like I used to be a seat filler. Um, and so <laughs> I would, I would just go to all these award ceremonies and, and whenever someone got up, I was instructed to go and sit in a seat. Huh. Um, which was, which was really fun. You know, it was <laughs> kind of like a way to mix with the celebrities, you know, that yeah. was, that was my, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that is, that's great. All right. So, so now you have the benefit of graduating with a master's without debt. So you yeah. can, you have a little bit more freedom to pursue exactly. Yeah. So, so I had a chance to go back to Australia, um, to get a position there and position, oh, teaching, teaching. Okay. And, um, and funnily enough, just before I was about to go back to Australia, um, I think it was like two days before I was meant to go back, um, one of the people who used to be my chamber teachers um, at Juilliard said, hey, I don't know if, if you know, but my next door neighbor is Ben Verdery. And it was like, you should really meet him. Mm. And so... I called Ben and Ben said, Hey, I'm free today. Do you want to meet up? And so I met up with him yeah. and Ben just said, um, you know, and I played a little bit for him, had, had a li little bit of a lesson and he just said, what are you doing next year? And I said, Oh, you know, I'm about to go back to Australia. I'm about to apply for a job, but, um, you know, I, I really like the States and I really like what I've done so far. And I really like the kind of the trajectory of, of what's happening here. And he said, well, why don't you come up to New Haven tomorrow and we'll organize an audition for you. And this was in, I think this was in May. Of 2005. 2004. Four, okay. Of May. Like late May. Mm -hmm. And um, so I remember I went up there the, the next morning and there was, uh, there was the two deans and there was Ben. Um, and we just played in the really beautiful recital hall there, and I just had an audition. Uh, what were you auditioning for? The uh, just to go there. Oh, okay. To, 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 to go and study there. Uh, and and uh, like, I, I, like a PhD? Uh, an like artist diploma. Artist diploma, okay. Yeah, and and uh, I went there, and um, and Ben was just, just fantastic, and... Um, Wait, well, sorry. Do we? Do we? What happened at the audition? I, I interrupted you while you were saying. Oh, so you. So I, I just went there and I played for like ten minutes, and they, they didn't say anything, and uh, just the dean looked at Ben and the other dean and just said, "Yeah, let's organize this." And um, then one of the other deans just turned to me and said, "See you next year." <laughs> and I had no idea what was going on, and 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 I spoke to Ben, and he's like, you know great audition uh you know let's obviously i know you're heading back to australia now but let's keep in touch about this and uh a couple of weeks later i got an email from yale with an acceptance uh with a really nice financial package um yeah they're they're famous for that right i mean if you get in yeah well well like... this was just before they actually got that incredible hundred million dollar donation oh, okay um so this this was still at the time where you know, everything was kind of based on the audition and, um, and you know, it was all kind of merit-based. And, mm -hmm. uh, so having that knowledge of that, I was going to be coming back to, um, America during my interview back in Australia, they, it was going really, really well. Um, I think I was 
maybe one of the th- only the third person in Australia to have gotten an overseas degree. Um, and uh, they asked me the fundamental question. It's like, you know, how long do you see yourself being here? <laughs> and oh, and and I, I looked at them <clears throat> and I could have easily said, you know, I want to stay here for a long time. And, and, um, but I just said to them, I said, look, you know, full disclosure, I, I think that I'm going to be going back to America. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, I don't want to string you guys along. You know, if there's a more suitable candidate, you need to take that person because I cannot commit right now. Yeah. And yeah, so. So, ignorant question. The difference between an MA in performance and an artist's diploma? So, uh, the MMA is is a degree at Yale that... It's just like an extra degree that they kind of just throw in. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then after that... Um, and it's, it's very, very vigorous uh, um, exam kind of schedule to, to get through... And then basically the MMA is, it's, it's like the doctorate, but you start with the MMA and then you have to go out into the world and kind of prove yourself. And then they switched it over to like awarding you a, a DMA. Uh, the artist diploma is just like a performance based degree, okay. um, where you don't really have any of the academics tied to it. So just, uh, think that, you know, maybe like the DMA is the academic kind of okay. real side. And then the, okay. the artist diploma is, is the performance kind of intensive side. Okay, so, so you're getting good support from Yale to pursue that. Yes. How long does it take? Two okay. years. Okay, two years. Two years. So now you're up around 2007. And yes. Same situation, coming out. Were you looking again back in Australia teaching, or were you looking to... Yes, so I actually had uh, two interviews lined up, one in uh, Australia for probably one of the dream jobs in, in Australia. Mm-hmm. And then the other job, there was one in, in, in Hong Kong. And uh, I was interested in, in both of them. Um, and three years before... Uh, sorry, three weeks before I graduated from Yale, um, I had a life-changing experience and uh, started dating the girl of my dreams. Ah, okay. And... Uh, so she was a, she's a pianist, if I remember correctly. Oboist. Oboist. Sorry. Oboist. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And, um, and this was at Yale. Yes. Okay. And so I, I, I had all intention of going back, you know, I, I was kind of skirting with the idea of the, the job in, in Hong Kong, but I had all intention of going back to Australia and kind of, you know, that was always the plan. Yeah. You know, I was always going to kind of go somewhere and then come back to Australia. And, uh, during that interview as well, um, you know, they asked the question, how long do you see yourself being here? And it was one of those moments where it was like this road or this road. And I took the other road and I just said, look, I just see this as being a stepping stone. And that was obviously (laughs) the wrong response. Right. And, and this was mostly because you had essentially fallen in love with yeah, someone back in the States. Yeah, okay. exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so... Um, and, and so, and where is she from? And So she's, she's from the Boston area. Oh, okay. And, so uh, this leads you now... Now we have the connection to the Boston Guitar Orchestra. Yeah, or yeah. So, so, so um, we then 
I just kind of came back and forth on, on visitors' visas um, to kind of hang out with her, and I thought, you know, how can I stay here longer? And I was like, well, why don't I apply for a doctorate somewhere? And originally with the thought that this doctorate was only going to kind of grant me a way of staying in America. Like, yeah. that was... Yeah, that's the main goal. That was the main goal. Yeah. And uh, so I auditioned um, at... Uh, Manhattan School at Eastman and at NEC. And um, I was living one block away from Manhattan School, and so it would have been really, really convenient. And uh, and I do have to say that my audition was perhaps one of the worst that I've ever played in my life. Mm. And it just did not go well. Um, and I had met... I met David Leisner many, many times, and um, and David just said, you know, Scott, I'm not sure what happened this time. I said, I don't know either, and mm -hmm. you know, um, and but then I, I went up and 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 had an audition with Nick up at Eastman, and then also an audition with with Elliot, mm -hmm. and Elliot Fisk at NEC. Yes, yeah. yes, and it was one of these situations where you know I wanted to study at, you know, I wanted to study at all three of these places. Mm. And um, Eastman was incredible. It's an incredible institution. It's got such a marvelous history. Nick is such a, just a genuine human with such natural abilities to talk and just to teach. Um, and anyone that gets a chance to study with him uh, is such a privilege. And uh, I've taken few you know many lessons with him and, mm. and I I just I just love what he has to say about music and uh and then I, I auditioned for Elliot and and uh I had never met Elliot before and I was just blown away just by the profoundness of the situation mm. and there was just I, I remember meeting him for the first time and it's just like, I'm not sure how I can kind of digest what is happening here. Mm. And um, I've been back and forth from NEC and Eastman, kind of, they, and Eastman uh, and NEC had been kind of doing counter offers. Mm. So Eastman offered me something, and then NEC offered me something. I went back to Eastman and said, hey, NEC's offered me this, and then Eastman offered me more. Then I went back to NEC, then they offered me more, and then went back to Eastman and they gave me an offer that I could not refuse. Oh, I mean, okay. like full ride, board, assistantship, teaching job at like some of the local colleges around there. I mean, yep. it was something that I could not refuse. And then NEC came back with like a, a fantastic package. Then I remember talking to Nick and Nick just said, how are you with cold weather? <laughs> And I said, I'm horrible with cold weather. Yeah. And Nick said, well, the entire time that you'll be studying here, it's going to be extraordinarily cold. And... As, it, as, as opposed to Boston? This is a selling point over Boston. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, um, and I just said, I can't handle the, the cold. And Nick, and, and Nick actually said to me, he was just like, Scott, I recommend you go and study with Elliot. Hmm. Wow, and um, so that's that's the type of person 
he is. That's great, um, yeah. You yeah. Know, although I really wanted to go and study with him and I really wanted to work with him. You know, I wanted to study with Elliot and work with him, of course. Right. You know, uh, there was there was just that that beauty about that just honesty from him, yeah. um, which just, you know, has, has stuck with me. And I, whenever anybody says, you know, I'm thinking about going to study at Eastman, I'm like, go, mm-hmm. you know, so, wow. um, and then, yeah, so, so then, uh, I, I got the chance to, to work with Elliot, but the entire time I was working with Elliot, I was living in New York oh. because I had had two jobs down there, um, where I was just teaching. Um, I had just gotten two jobs and I, was teaching I, private students or in a school or, something? uh, yeah, I was teaching in in two schools. Okay. Um, and you know, I had been on and off in New York for many, many years now, and I wasn't prepared to kind of leave all of those contacts and move to Boston. Um, also, uh, my girlfriend at the time, she was, she, well, my wife who was my girlfriend, uh, she was, um, integrating herself into the New York scene. She was playing on Broadway Uh, and a bunch of other things. And so, you know, she obviously couldn't, um, so she's from leave. Boston, but she was living in New York. Yes, at this point. yes, okay. and 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 she couldn't leave New York because uh, you know she was starting to kind of really move up the ranks mm-hmm. uh, in terms of freelancing in New York, and it was something that we were unprepared to kind of leave. And so, and then I found out that I could fit my entire schedule on one day. So at, I took uh, at NEC. So I took whatever class was on a Monday. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. So you've been taught f- formally and extensively by Sharon has been Ben Verdery and Elliot Fisk. It's yes. like the triumvirate of oh, yeah. U.S. Yeah. teaching. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's... I feel very lucky and privileged. And, you know, every single one of them I, I learned so much. And to this day, I still, whenever I'm doing performance, arranging, conducting, just even talking to people about music, uh, you know, I still kind of grasp a lot of their knowledge which they imparted on me. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed Elliot made it to your um, recent performance of the Great Necks at uh, the Lutheran Church in Boston. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. That yeah. was that was a, a very special moment for me. Yeah. I, you know, we had we've been talking a lot about arranging. I'd I I've played a ton of his arrangements and you know and, and a lot of the techniques that I actually learnt from of, of arranging and a lot of the a lot of the kind of the pushing the boundaries um, of what's possible I've I've learnt from him. So. Oh, did he give you any uh, candid feedback afterwards? Yes, he did. What did he say? Um, he, he said that we need to be a little, we need to find moments of more tenderness. Ah. And, uh, you know, um, and uh, I, I agree yeah. 100%. Yeah. And it's it's been something that we've been talking about. It's actually kind of funny because uh, the next week uh, we were playing in Nashville. Oh. Oh, that's right. And yeah. uh, and Stanley Yates was there, and he said exactly the same thing. Really? So, yeah. uh, you know, it's funny. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. funny how how genius can just recognize right. that immediately. Right. Yeah. And then so. actually looking back, I mean, I, I can I, I wouldn't have said the same thing, but I I can I can see what they mean. Yes. Um, then again, I mean, you three very large personalities yeah. individually put them together. Of course, it would be somewhat difficult to find yes. moments of yes. tenderness. Um, that, that's super interesting. Um, okay, so so coming back to the commerce piece. So yes. you're now, so it's 2019, you're um, you're obviously performing with the Great Necks. I, I don't know, where are you living these days? So I'm down in the D.C. area. Right, that's right, okay. And what's making it all work for you these days? I know, so, so, what's the home situation? Sorry, so you're married now? Yes, I'm married with, with two kids. Yeah. Um, I, 
I have a uh, adjunct position at Montgomery College. Oh, okay, great. Um, which is fantastic. But you know what honestly allows me to do this? What allows me to have the adjunct position? What allows me to have the family? Uh, what allows me to perform? What allows me to kind of conduct and and everything like that? Um, to be honest with you, is is my wife? Um, mm. She has an extraordinary job with the U.S. Army Field Band. Ah. So all the perks with with what what you get from having a government job, mm-hmm. and uh, she also gets a chance to perform one hundred days a week. Ah, uh, sorry, so 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 hundred hundred days a year, like right. minimum. Um, she's yeah. she's actually on the road a uh, hundred days a year, and uh, she's actually on the road right now. And uh, wow. um, and she's got the kids there, and uh, we she brings the kids with her. Yes, wow. yes, and uh, we have a very amazing uh, situation where Sarah's mother lives very close to us. Okay, and um, she does she helps us out a lot, and yeah. that okay. makes everything possible. Yeah, that's um, awesome. And and so especially when she's on tour, uh, I usually she ha- usually has four to five week tours at the time, so I usually go out there for two weeks with her, and then um, Sarah's mom. Uh, takes over and uh, it's it's a fantastic kind of situation. I mean, of course, it's very difficult and it's tiring, but I mean, we wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, she's yeah. doing what she exactly. dreams of doing, performing yeah. 100 days a year. Yeah. You're able to still raise a family yeah. um, and you're able to pursue. So you're I know you were conductor of the Boston Guitar Orchestra for a while. Are, are you conducting down? In yes, and, and so for the past three years, I've also... Oh, sorry, it's maybe four years, actually, now. Um, time flies. Uh, I've been uh, in charge of the Baltimore Classical Guitar Society Orchestra, and awesome. so I've been doing that, and okay. um, we're actually preparing for a performance at the end of this month. Okay. Right now, so. And so so there's that gig. There's the arranging. Is yes. there? Do you have a publishing deal with ASCAP or BMI? Where, like, I mean, do you see... Proceeds from the arranging. Uh, so, so I do have this grand plan. Um, it's something that I just haven't had the time to do yet. Um, but um, I, I've been in touch with 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 a guy, um, Manly uh, Mallard. Uh, he runs Guitar Chamber Music Press. Okay. Um, and I do have one piece which is out by him. But you know, we do have the intention of of kind of in going further on this, um, yeah. especially uh, with a lot of the arrangements I've been doing. Um, you know, there's a couple of ones on which have really gotten traction. Um, like I think that the the zombie arrangement has got like seven hundred and fifty thousand views on online nice. and stuff wow. like that. Yeah. Um, so you know, we 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 do have to look at licensing and obviously right. things like that and figure that out. Of course, I do need to clean up my scores. I need to really look at them, get them engraved properly, and um, and then kind of go down that track. But I just haven't. Well, you have a lot I just haven't on. had the time yeah. just yet. But it yeah. it is something that is definitely on my radar, and yeah. you know, and that's that's something that I I would like to kind of look at as a source of income. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, because I've got I've got like sixty arrangements mm. now, and probably I get two emails a week for people asking for my Bohemian Rhapsody arrangement. Nice. Um, yeah. So there's there's yeah. a lot of potential there, and it's something that What, what do you do at this up. point, like pre-licensing? So they, you've, you know, to those people who are asking for Bohemian Rhapsody, um, how do you I handle just, that? I just give it to them. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah I mean, 
you know, it's it's usually from people that uh, I yeah, I know and to, yeah, I've yeah. got some sort of connection. I do get some random emails from people, and you know, I I say to them, I say, you know, here it is, just use it, just please put me as the arranger. Yeah. That's that's all yeah. I ask. Yeah. And just get the name um, out. Yeah. You know, and you know, I it's you know, although it's something that I would like to get some income from, you know, it, it's something that. I'd like to kind of put out into the world. I mean, to be honest yeah. with you, I think that the state of arranging for guitar is not good. I it, it, it is yeah. not good. And uh, people, you know, people will just get like a string quartet and just copy the parts and just scrub out violin and just write guitar and say, hey, here is a guitar yeah. quartet. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's it doesn't do anything to heighten the guitar as... As, as a serious instrument or as yeah. a chamber instrument um, and people need to be more thoughtful about their arrangements fingerings like and just like think about the sonic, sonic ramifications of what they're doing mm -hmm. um, you know no one puts in any sort of fingerings like to try to get in a uniformity of sound nobody puts in any tone colors I mean tone color in in guitar playing is an entirely tie new podcast as far as I'm concerned yeah, because yeah. I mean I mean, all of the marvelous things that the guitar does and has, a, you know, guitars, the, the palette which we have available to us, 95% of guitarists do not use it, you know, because everyone's stuck in this little world of just making everything sound nice. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's a, a good point. Um, okay, so so that's, so we took arranging, conducting, you have at least one CD out, yeah? I mean, solo. I know yes. you've got Great Necks as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've got I've got one <clears throat> CD out. Um, I don't think that there's any surprise that people don't make any money from right. CDs. Right, this we know. Yeah. Um, this was more of a personal endeavor. Mm -hmm. um, I was very, very fortunate to, to get tied up with um, this marvelous record company, um, Odradek, and um, I actually kind of got involved with them from when they were very, very small, and now they're starting to become very big. Um, it's a marvelous record company, and it's actually run by the artists themselves. Cool. Um, and so whenever like a new artist gets onto the roster, we actually all have a say whether they should be on the label or not. Mm. Um, which cool. it's, it's a really, really marvelous setup. And, you know, but that's that's for one of those... You know, more kind of selfish personal reasons. Yeah, well, you want to, um, sure. You, you know, just to, you do down yeah, just to kind yeah. of have a record of, of what you've done. And, you yeah. know, I, I listened back to that um, album. When did it come out? Oh, my gosh. Um, 2012, maybe? Okay. And, um, Is it available on for download as well on Spotify? Yes. It is. Uh, okay. I, I'm not sure if it's on Spotify. Um, right. I think it might be. Actually, I the, the record label does that but okay. you know um i imagine you're not getting checks from spotify if you're not sure if they're on oh there. absolutely not <laughs> um but you know it's 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 a cd that i was ex very very proud of and i listened back to it and i don't know how i played those pieces i'm just like seven. those were nimbler fingers back then or yeah okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know it, it, it's, it's always a juggle trying to be an entrepreneur trying to figure out how you can um you know you know, how many pots you can have your hands in at, at the one time to kind of yeah. piece together a, a, a career, you know, gone are the days of where you can just be a performer. I mean, that's not possible. Uh, teaching positions are far and few. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, uh, 
you know, um, most people have to combine several adjunct positions just to get by. You know, for mm-hmm. me, I'm very lucky because of my family situation. Yeah. Um, with with the with my wife having such an incredible job, um, that's the only reason why it allows me to do this. I yeah. mean, if yeah. if I didn't have that, um, I probably would not be doing music. Mm. I would probably be in a different field now. Yeah. And, you know, most of the, most of my colleagues that I actually went to Juilliard with, you know, they've held marvelous positions, you know, principal trumpet in orchestra, second trumpet in like Baltimore, um, you know, flute in various orchestras and things like that. You know, um, I think that I'm one of the only people from my group of core friends from Juilliard who are still doing music. Wow. Yeah. You're talking about the, that group of five guitarists, or no, 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 just the, 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 whole the, the, the group of friends which which I had at Juilliard. Like, uh, wow, yeah, no one is doing music. Everyone's gone into like finance or or some other form. Yeah, it's 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 nuts. I mean, yeah. it's it's a it's it's a very very difficult career to kind of to to continue and to kind of it, it's it's got to trudge by every yeah. single day. Yeah. And you know, the the great thing though is that. It's never, it's never something which is going to make you rich, but it's never something where you're going to be extremely poor. You mm-hmm. know, the reality is, is that, you know, although, you know, funding's being cut for arts and everything like that, arts will never die. There's always that thirst for arts and culture. There's always going to pe- be people who want that creative side. There's always going to be private students. I mean, uh, I actually, I only take on one private student. Um, I used to have like a private studio, but I, I don't have that anymore. I don't need it. Mm. Um... And, but if any, if ever anything kind of really falls apart, there, there is that, that you can always rely upon. Um, and I mean, I mean, you can make a very livable income from just two days of, of teaching. Um, that's, that's the reality of it. I mean, so it is something that you will never be struggling for. Like, I mean, uh, I always say, you know, like thank God that like, I'm never going to be homeless. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because like I always have that as a backup plan. I could always go to a restaurant and be like, Hey, how about I play for two hours and you just give me food? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so there is that means where you can just always get by. Like there is always ways that you can find some form of finance. Yeah. That's a beautiful sentiment. So I have, so before we get to yep. outro, I wanted, I wanted to ask about like if there's who you're listening to these days and then also who we should, what, which of your tracks we should go out with. Yep. Um, but before we get there, I was just thinking, you know, it sounds to me and well, hearing you play, but also just hearing you talk for the past half hour or so, it sounds like you have a gift for music. You know, here's someone who grew up, practice, yes, you put in a lot of practice, but not everyone who puts in a lot of practice has a private audition with Sharon has been and yeah. she's like yeah, yeah stay here for an extra hour and you're in yeah and then the same yeah. with Ben yeah. Burgery and yeah. then the same with Elliot yeah. Fisk plus yeah. Eastman um do you if you had it's maybe difficult to self-evaluate but if you had to say you know which of how much of the talent that you bring is innate versus how much was you know blood sweat and tears and hours on the guitar how would you break that down I think that it, it all just comes down to work. Yeah. I, I really do. I mean, I think that there are some things which you bring to the table that you're naturally born with. And uh, I remember growing up, 
I was always the musical one. My brother was always the, the technician. Mm. And, you know, so for me, the musical side always came very naturally. The technical side for me was a lot of work. Mm. Um, whereas it was the opposite for my brother. The technical side just came for him so naturally, whereas mm-hmm. the music, musical side for him was a lot of work. And um, was, was the work he put in on the musical side... Uh, bearing fruit because I, I, you know, technically, oh, I associate. Oh yes, yeah. Okay. Oh yes. Like I mean, I mean, uh, my my brother just. I mean, he, he he's a genius first and foremost. Um, you know, whatever he does, he he excels in. Uh, but, I mean, you know, I remember when we were thirteen. Um, you know, he was playing the Chacon. Um. <laughs> You know, he was, you know, we were, we would, you know, I remember being in a competition and, you know, he was 13, I was 11, we were up against 24 year olds and, you know, he's going out and playing the Chicane, I'm going out and playing like the Villa Bostro number one and the variations on the theme of Mozart Mm. and my brother's winning, you know, and uh, it was, I mean... You know, but, uh, I mean, that being said, you know, there was always that kind of thought about my, my brother's playing that, you know, it wasn't as musical as, mm. as it could be. There's always that, that saying about my playing, it's not as technical as it, as it can be. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but it, both it, it were definitely... both achievable through work. Exactly, exactly. It, yeah. okay. A lot of the difference was always made up through hard work. Okay, and, gotcha. uh, and consistent work. Like, mm-hmm. that was always the key. I mean... It was always every single day. We couldn't miss a day. And, you know, because if, if we miss a day, you, you know, I know that there's that saying, you know, you miss one day, you notice you miss two days, you know, the critics notice you miss three days, the audience notices it. And it's the truth. It really is. Mm, yeah. Um, That's cool. I like that. Um, so I'm going to come back to just before we started the mic, um, you were walking up here to, to sit down and, uh, you know, we're all ready to roll and you saw a student playing in the hallway. We're at the University of Rhode Island's Guitar Fest and something was not right about the way that he was holding his right hand. And I yes. just remember, this, it's, like, it's like innate for you. You stopped and you showed him in a very nice way how to correct his position a little bit. And then, you know, it's just like, the day, I just thought for something, the day in the life of Scott. Like, yeah. you see someone, you see that you can help them and you help them. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that, you know, I think that if you follow a career or something like that, and you see something in someone that you can improve, um, I think that, you know, everyone should be doing it, like, in in, in their respective careers. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, a lot of people do that. Yeah. And, um... That was, that was a beautiful moment. Yeah, and but, I, uh, I, I, I... And, you know, I, 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 I think that one of the reasons why we become teachers is that we want people to get better we want to improve people's lives yeah and yeah Yeah. selfishly so that they play better music that we can later hear exactly right um (laughs) so and then the other thing we briefly touched on was just you know the lack of time when you're doing as much as you're doing but is there anything what has there anything that you've been listening to outside um of the stuff that you're making or working on that has been of notable or that you're liking these days or that you want the listeners to know about I listen to country music. Country, all right. Yeah. Which artists? Uh, just anything that's on, on the country radio station. Um, I love the production value. Oh. I love love the mixing. I love how just the balance of all of the instruments. 
and and how everything's layered and and how the pieces are constructed. Country music is very different to all of the other music out there, and yeah. and you know I actually use a lot of what what I hear in my own kind of arranging. Very cool. Um, yeah. And you know I just but but also also you know the country music just is always makes me feel very neutral and I only really listen to it when I'm in the car and mm-hmm. you know I, I find that when I listen to other uh, music especially around the DC Beltway <laughs> yeah, you know it calms you down yeah, a little bit it, yeah, it, it right, does it, it adds that yeah. kind of element of, of calmness right right to the it actually drive. reminds me of reading an interview with Steve Vai back in the day you know Steve Vai very uh, sort of alpha male uh, heavy metal guitarist and they were asking him what do you listen to and he, he said Pretty sure, without irony, he said Britney Spears. Yeah, so yeah. For, the, for the production value, it's like yeah. she's got the very best people working. Yeah, and so it stuck with me. Um, okay, so so that's what you're listening to, and the, any any particular artist in country? Or just, no, just the, okay. No, and then, I mean, I mean, look, you, you can't go wrong with Keith Urban, you know, fellow fellow Aussie. And okay. <laughs> okay, Keith Urban, got it. All right, and then for outro, what what which of your tracks, either from your CD or uh, either from your solo or the Great Next, would you like us to go out with? Oh my gosh, that's a tough question. I think that probably the one which is closest to my heart would it would have to be Finlandia. Nice. Um, okay. You know, that's that's really that was the first kind of way. It was the first kind of manifestation of of the vision that I've had for so many years of of what I wanted to kind of do with music. And you know, it took me so long to find two artists who were as crazy as me. <laughs> um, to kind of embark on this journey together, and uh, you know, I've been, I, yeah. I've known both of them for so long now. I Matthew Rohde and yeah, Eleven, yep. yeah, and uh, and I'd been talking, and Matt and I were actually duo partners at Yale, and we had been talking about this idea for many, 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 many years, um, and we kind of, you know, just needed to find that third musketeer, and um, and Adam, yeah, it was just finding a person as crazy as us, you know, s- someone willing to really push the boundary. Yeah. Now, was this the one that you counted the number of notes within the first X yeah. bars? Okay, so how many notes are we going to Oh, my hear? gosh. I can't even remember. Wow. But there's a lot of notes. It's something like, I think it's over 5,000 notes in the first, like, 22 measures, which okay. which are audible. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's, uh, you know, that that piece is something which we're, I'm extraordinarily proud of. Um, and reviews have been kind of different. And that's that's what I love about that piece as well. Uh, you know, it is obviously the orchestral piece, and people are like, sometimes it's like, oh, you know, uh, we, we got a review in Classical Guitar Magazine, and uh, the the person said, the, the reviewer said, you know, at first I, you know, I was thought like, no way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and at first, like, he didn't like the arrangement. Mm-hmm. But then it made him go back and listen a second time, and then a third time to nice. try to figure out what was going on, and and and, and I, I think he wrote at the end, I, I can't remember the exact words, and he said, you know, I, I started to love what these guys have done and really appreciated what craziness is really happening here. That's and, great, yeah. you know, I, I think for me that was exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to challenge listeners. I wanted to, like, broaden their, their horizons. And, I mean, the, the, the fact that he went back and listened a second and a third time, I think that speaks volumes of, of what I wanted to achieve. Absolutely, yeah. No, some, I remember when I was younger, as a teenager especially, the music that I hated at first was the music that I ended up loving the yep. most. And that's, so that's, yeah, that's a great story. Okay, thank you very much, Scott Thank Borg. you so much for having me. Thank yes. you. We are about to wrap things up here. 
at the More Art Than Science podcast. But before we do, allow me to beseech you. If you like this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Doing so helps others find the show, which in turn helps the artists that I interview find more fans, which in turn helps fill the world with more and better music. Do your bit!